Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. Trade wars, intellectual property, public health, the global economy, and democracy versus authoritarianism. All are major parts of our public dialogue and all pertain to the state of China today. No other nation on the planet today presents such an enormous footprint of the future than China, perhaps even more so than the U.S. That's why the protests and events of the past year or so in Hong Kong are so important, not just for the people of Hong Kong, but as a symbol of the face that the Chinese decide that it's comfortable putting forth to the world. We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Jeffrey Wasserstrom. He is the Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine and the author of five previous books about China. He writes for leading academic journals and contributes to the New York Times, the Times Literary Supplement, The Atlantic, and other publications. He's an advisor to the Hong Kong International Literary Festival and a former member of the Board of Directors of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Wasserstrom here to talk about his new book, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be able to talk about this. When did the current crisis in Hong Kong begin, and what really precipitated it? So the crisis began in, we, we need to go back back for a while. I mean, Hong Kong became part of the People's Republic of China as a special administrative region that was supposed to enjoy a high degree of autonomy under something called a one country, two systems arrangement. That happened in 1997. And Beginning in 2003 and then picking up speed in 2012 and 2014, there was a series of protests um, that were motivated at heart by a conflict between the way people in, many people in Hong Kong understand what it means to have a high degree of autonomy from Beijing and what it means to have one country but two systems. At different points, Beijing has tried to rein in the things that make Hong Kong very different, a freer civil society, a much freer press, more democracy, though never full democracy. And when efforts to tighten controls uh, happen there, the Hong Kong people, who in the past were mistakenly thought to be apolitical and caring only about making and spending money and spending their leisure time, have shown a tremendous capacity to push back and to make new demands for greater protections of a way of life that they consider very special. But the biggest protest of all began, as you said, about a year ago. And the impetus this time was a law, an extradition uh, bill, which would have made it possible for the Chinese Communist Party to have people taken out of Hong Kong onto the mainland and then tried for doing things that the Communist Party disagreed with, they would be tried in a court system that across the mainland has very few rights for defendants and very rarely returns um, innocent verdicts. Hong Kong people, one of the things they pride themselves on is a different kind of rule of law and independent courts within Hong Kong. So this was seen as the latest important affront to the one country, two systems arrangement in the way people in Hong Kong understood it. Did the Chinese have any idea when they proposed this that it was going to trigger the kind of response that it has? So I, I'd like to just sort of take apart, when you said the Chinese, I'm, I'm thinking the Chinese Communist Party, um, the, the state authorities in, in Beijing. There's another important set of actors um, who are the heads of the Hong Kong government, Carrie Lam, who's the chief executive there, uh, who is a 
proxy in some ways for Beijing locally, who claims to represent the local people, but is largely taking cues from Beijing. And we've seen this again uh, in dealing with the, the virus crisis. It's unclear whether exactly what it was, whether it was her idea to bring forward the extradition bill, she claims it is, whether there was were suggestions that she do things like this. In the past, there have been other times things that have led to protests that clearly came from signaling from Beijing. But I don't think anybody thought there would be quite the amount of outrage about this uh, that there that there was. You know, on June 9th, a million people or so took to the streets to protest this. And Hong Kong only has about seven and a half million people. So that's an enormous percentage of the population. And then one week later, an even bigger crowd of people took to the streets. This was not something that people saw coming. It wasn't something the authorities saw coming, and it frankly wasn't something that um, people involved in the movement saw coming. It, for, for one side, it was a... Um, it was a terrible surprise, and, and the other, for the other side, it was a really exciting surprise. Was there any instinct on the part of, of the Chinese government authorities, either locally through Kerry Lam or, or, or in Beijing, to find some kind of a quick compromise to tamp this down before it got too out of hand? Quite the contrary. After that million-person march, uh, there was another um, protest a few days later, and at that point, um, the police used, began using strong-arm tactics, and they've used more and more. There's been an incredible amount of tear gas used, used by the police. There were also a small group of protesters. The June 9th protests had been completely um, uh, peaceful civil disobedience. During June 12th, some of the protesters also ratcheted things up by taking uh, possession of, uh, of, a government, of a government office. And that then, that then led to even stronger actions by the police, but also it led to the fact that the police had used tough tactics led to more support for the movement. And that began this dynamic that has gone on throughout, um, throughout the, the months that, that followed. And there, each side tends to make the most of what violence is done by the other side, but the violence is of a different sort. The police violence is often aimed at bodies through uses of enormous amounts of tear gas and also rubber bullets and um, beanbag shot that hurt people. Most of the violence by protesters has been directed at buildings and objects. Very rarely there have been some, some very regrettable um, attacks on people, but for the most part, it's seen, it, the different, there's a difference in the kind of violence used. And the expectation by the authorities was that Hong Kong people wouldn't support the protests as soon as there was any degree of violence on the part of the protesters. But the opposite happened. The perception was, has been, and still is, and I think it's the right perception, that more of the, um, the ratcheting up of violence is largely spurred on, above all, by, um, by police actions. And this has led, this led to there being a new demand besides an end to the extradition bill, and in some ways a demand that became the biggest demand of the movement, which was for an independent investigation of police activities. And the government, local government, refused, has refused to acknowledge that anything inappropriate was done by the police, whereas a lot of people in Hong Kong see the police force as out of control. 
What has been the economic consequence, the cost of this to Hong Kong, and what has been the position of of the business community and the powerful business interests in Hong Kong? So it's a great question. It's a very important one, and there are varied kinds of economic um, fallout, and we'll see more economic fallout from the way in which the, the virus has been handled. Because what makes Hong Kong attractive to international business is in part its separateness from the People's Republic of China, the fact that, uh, from other parts of the People's Republic of China, the fact that there is still a different kind of rule of law, a different kind of um, protections in the city, and that it's a safer city. And that perception has, has been hurt by both the protests and by the fact that the Hong, Kong, Hong Kong seems to have not been able to protect itself differently um, from the impact of the virus. There's been a variety of kinds of economic fallout. Um, tourism most clearly has, has been hit very hard. Places like Disneyland, um, had, there's the Hong Kong Disneyland, and it had a dramatic drop-off in, in people going there even before it was then closed completely um, in the time of the virus. There's been, uh, there's been a kind of fallout that will take a while for us to see, which is that major international businesses, from what I heard when I was there um, in December, major international businesses aren't, some, aren't, aren't necessarily fleeing from Hong Kong because of a, a sense that there's, less, there's a lessening of the rule of law and things like that there. But what it is is a company is trying to decide where in East Asia or Southeast Asia, that, that area, they want to set up a base of operations outside of the mainland. They may, may now think, well, maybe Taiwan or Singapore or Bangkok would make more sense than Hong Kong. So Hong Kong's becoming less attractive to, um, to businesses. Another economic fallout from this, a very interesting one to me, is that um, protesters have some of the vandalism that protesters have carried out, and it's important to note that protesters have engaged in vandalism, has been directed at companies or businesses that are owned or associated with opponents of the movement or people who've um, criticized the movement. And in a more positive sense, protesters have encouraged people to frequent restaurants and stores that have expressed support for the protest. And when I was in Hong Kong in December, there were some um, windows of uh, restaurants that had been turned into these beautiful collages of colored post-it notes with um, pro-democracy, anti-police, and other kinds of slogans and drawings on them and some, some colorful artwork. The movement's been incredibly creative and, and beautiful at times in terms of the artistic side. And so protesters are drawn to those places and eschewing going to the others. There, there's talk of there being a, a yellow economy because yellow is a, is a color associated with the protests. Are there any voices in Beijing to back off this, to tamp this down? So I, it's very hard to know, and I think it's important to realize that we just, we just don't really know what kinds of debates are going on inside the higher echelons of the Chinese Communist Party. Under Xi Jinping, it's just become a much more closed-off um, a closed off entity. It was never an open entity, but there was more, more, it was easier to get a sense of debate. People are much, much more reticent who are high up about talking to, um, to foreign journalists, and we just, we just don't know. My sense is that there, 
there was some messaging from Beijing that went something like this. We really want this to go away, but we want it to be handled internally, that they did not want to have the People's Liberation Army soldiers, who were the ones who carried out the massacre in 1989 that so outraged the world. They didn't want foreign, they didn't want soldiers from across the border to, to come in. They wanted this to be handled by the Hong Kong police and the Hong Kong authorities. And there were a set of um, assumptions made that have proved incorrect over and over again about what would make the movement go away. I think there was an effort, some of the police um, strong-arm tactics, I think, was meant to try to egg on protesters to, in turn, raise the ante in terms of their own actions. And there have been things like Molotov cocktails thrown and things like that from the side of the protesters. But the expectation that that would alienate the vast majority of Hong Kong people from the movement just hasn't proved true because it's still felt to people that it's um, the police that are out of control. And it's important. I've talked a lot about the police actions in Hong Kong and the police actions in Hong Kong don't, don't necessarily seem to be on par with the worst things that we've seen from police in other places where large numbers of protesters have been shot and things like that. But the Hong Kong police used to be seen as, as unusually disciplined and restrained. And it was a real rare, and the, the idea was that Hong Kong was a place where if you, that large scale protests could take, take place and um, the police would allow that to happen. So it's really the, the, the disconnect or the difference from past expectations that's kept, that's, that's kept the level of, of fury at the, at the police so high. Talk about the leaders of the protest movement. Who are they, and, and are they pretty consistent in what they want to see happen? So this movement, in 2019, there aren't really clear um, leaders, and that's been an intentional choice by the movement, because the, the, the idea is that in past movements, it's been too easy for um, leaders to be, to be arrested and pulled out of the movement, and that to cause problems uh, for the movement. So in 2014, during the Umbrella Movement, which was the last major wave be before um, the 2019 one, there were, there were clear leaders, and they were an interesting mix of, of people. There were some fairly senior academics, um, a law professor named Benny Tai, and a sociology professor named Chan Kin Man. And they were ardent proponents of sort of Gandhian, Martin Luther King-style civil disobedience. They talked about drawing inspiration from figures like, like Gandhi and Thoreau. And they, um, and they were seen by some of the protesters as, as a bit too moderate because the government in 2014 was, was really ignoring the demand of protesters at that point, which was for more open elections for the chief executive office. There were other um, protester, protest leaders who were key in 2014, college um, students, uh, and also some uh, high school students, the most famous of whom became the kind of international face of the movement, was um, Joshua Wong, um, a young man who in 2012, when he was only 14, had helped uh, lead along with his classmate Agnes Chow, who was also about 14, both born about the time of the handover. They had led a student-led movement against the imposition of patriotic-style education, more like the mainland into Hong Kong. One of the other 
ways that Hong Kong is different is that the education, the civics education is unlike the mainland. In the civic education in Hong Kong, you learn about things like the Tiananmen protests and the June 4th massacre. So these students, Joshua um, Wong, Agnes Chow, and others, and as well as college students who were involved in the student union, uh, in 2014, they were all um, important. And there was a divide among them about they wanted to, ha- to use more they were more ready to use confrontational tactics to sort of um, in-your-face moves toward the government and the way they spoke and the way they, they behaved. So there was very little um, there was very little violence of any kind, even at that point, even toward property. But there were there were moves toward occupying zones that um, moving into to territory that the police wanted them out of. After the umbrella movement, um, the police moved or the authorities moved to hassle these people in quite a number of ways, banning them from traveling to the mainland, which for young Hong Kongers means cutting them off from from a lot of economic opportunities because international businesses want to hire people who have access to the to the mainland. But they also put people on trial. Joshua Wong served a, a prison term. Um, it was a very curious thing. He, he was sentenced to community service for his role in civil disobedience. And then uh, the authorities said, no, that's too light a sentence. And he was, uh, they reexamined the sentence and sentenced him to, to a short prison term. Chan Kin Man and Benny Tai, who were these ardent proponents of nonviolent action, were put on trial um, about a year ago and were sentenced in April of last year to um, each of them more than a year in prison for, it was a very oddly worded, something like inciting people, inciting people to incite people. There was no claim that they had engaged in any kind of um, militant action, but somehow they provided the context in which there was. And so having these having those two who might have been important voices for moderation and restraint removed from the scene is also another thing that may have led to um, a move toward, toward greater militancy. But during the movement that's been going on, there's been an effort to have um, a very decentralized form of um, decision-making. The movement is very different in lots of ways from the yellow vest movement in France, but there's a similar lack of clearly designated leaders and that's made it harder for the authorities to remove a leader from the scene. But it's also made it harder for the movement to end because there's nobody clear, clearly designated who could negotiate um, a, a, an ending to it. So it's, a, it's both a strength of the movement and a, and a kind of problem. Given that, given how difficult it is to, to find someone to negotiate with, how does this end? How does this play out, do you think? It's really hard to know, and this is, of course, where the historian says, you know, I study the past, not the not the future. Even if I study the present, I don't want to speculate on the future. But, I mean, that's the kind of stock thing that members of my discipline say. But there's an added thing in the case of, of Hong Kong and the case of social movements. Social movements are notoriously hard to predict. There weren't people... Who were who knew there were people who knew an enormous amount about Egypt and um, Tunisia, and they weren't saying just before Arab Spring, oh, all the signs are here that there's going to be an enormous upheaval that will end these long enduring authoritarian systems, even if they or and uh, no way to know what would replace them. Um, 
we didn't know in this country. I think if, if just like four years ago, if you'd said, will the teenagers in um, the United States be likely to lead a massive um, protest in the coming years? Most people would have said, no way. They're much too focused on, their, um, on themselves and their cell phones. They don't really care about things. And then there was Parkland, and there was the giant march against guns, and there were climate strikes in, in different places. The, so it's, it's very unpredictable. And then Hong Kong itself has had a long history of just surprising, making fools of forecasters. So I, I think it's important to keep that in mind. I talk in the book about some famously uh, off-base um, predictions that have been made and admit that you know, I, I didn't know what would happen after Hong Kong, uh, after the Hong Kong handover. But it's And then there are totally unexpected things. So it it looked as though the movement was going to continue into 2020 with uh, a series of ongoing large-scale gatherings, maybe not as big as the biggest ones of last year, but significantly sized ones. But then a totally unexpected thing, the virus, has led to people staying out of of large-scale gatherings. And so that was something you just couldn't predict. I do think that the discontent with the with the local authorities and with Carrie Lam in particular isn't going away. And in fact, it's been expanding even as there have been fewer protests in the last couple of weeks. It's been expanding because there are people who might have been ambivalent about the protests themselves, but now share a view of the protesters that there's something wrong when the most important local authority is always looking to what people in a distant, fairly distant capital think they should be doing rather than listening to the voices of people within their community. Is the change, is the the damage that's been done, the impact to Hong Kong, is it irreparable at this point? Will things be different going forward? I think things will be different. It's hard to know how they'll be different. I think they'll be They'll be different in a couple of ways. The the movement in recent years has created a stronger uh, sense of of identity, of local identity, and a passionate commitment to Hong Kong as a place that um, and a, and a desire to do whatever is necessary, whatever is possible to try to maintain that the special characteristics of it. But at the same time. There's there there are things that it's hard to imagine in a, in a negative sense coming back. I, I think there there isn't going to be as much confidence in rule of law in Hong Kong. There isn't as much confidence of separation of powers between courts and the police, which was something quite um, strong. And even in 2014, when the police would arrest protesters and the courts would say, "You've got no case." More and more ways, I think it's clear that the differences between branches and the differences between um, arms of, of authority are blurring. And that's, of course, an enormous issue in our country as well. It's, it's, it's leading to a profound sense of crisis. But I don't see a way. It's very hard. You know, in Hong Kong, it's very hard to see a way of those things these those things coming back and at least as long as Xi Jinping is in power and at this point um, he's at least made it so that he could potentially um, while there's support for him among the the top elite stay in power indefinitely rather than having any kind of terms 
there's such a emphasis um, from him on control that it's hard to see how there would be any loosening as opposed to just further tightening um, of um, of outside control on, on Hong Kong, and that that will continue to spur uh, pushback. What form it takes, I don't know. The the situation there is becoming more and more like that of a colonial setting where there's an anti-colonial movement, and it, it Hong Kong used to be a colony of of Britain where the most powerful person was appointed by London. And now it's, it's largely seen by many people um, within, the, within the, the place as a colony of, um, of Beijing. To what extent, though, and we, we talked a little bit about this before, will economics really have a profound impact over the long run if companies leave, if global multinationals leave, if, if more executives leave, more Brits leave? What, what impact is that going to have on the economic underpinnings of Hong Kong? And will that be the thing that maybe makes a difference? So... The Chinese Communist Party likes the fact that Hong Kong serves somewhat different economic functions. And in some ways, it's become clear uh, Macau, a neighboring island that used to be a Portuguese colony and now is part of the PRC under a similar one country, uh, two systems arrangement. The Beijing's made it clear that they think what's happened in Macau is what they'd like to see. And, and what, what I mean by that is Macau, there, there is more space for expressions of opinion and there's more democracy than there is on the mainland, but there isn't the kind of contentious uh, politics that there is in Hong Kong. But there are very different economic things that happen in Macau as opposed to on the mainland. The most obvious is there are casinos and gambling. And there's a, a usefulness of that to have a zone that's both part of your country, but operates differently from the point of view of Beijing. And they would like Hong Kong to, to be that way, but not to have the full package of it also being different in, um, in political and free speech terms. And so that's the contradiction we're seeing here. And, and there is a sense in which um, Hong Kong continues to play an important economic role for um, the People's Republic as a whole as a kind of in-between zone where um, different things can be done financially. Um, the Chinese Communist Party has been trying to build up Shenzhen, a neighboring country, a neighboring city on the mainland, and Shanghai as kind of alternative economic and financial hubs. Uh, they would like those places to have stock markets that were the equal of Hong Kong, but the Hong Kong stock market is still the more important one. So it's it is something that's, that's key to this phenomenon, and it's the question is how much further can Shenzhen and Shanghai be built up, and how big a hit will this will this play to um, to Hong Kong's role that way? But the the Chinese Communist Party is contending with a whole series of different challenges and um, crises at the moment, and it's also adjusting to a world sometimes by by doing things that really are overreach, adjusting to a world where it's where where China is just a much more significant player and global censorship, global censure of actions by the Communist Party is more muted in part because of how many crises we're dealing with. So it's it's a very much of a situation in flux. And I think the fact that 
so many of these issues come together in Hong Kong makes what would might seem just a local story really a crucial global one. Jeffrey Wasserstrom. Jeffrey, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much. Those were great questions. Thank you.